Okay, well, last week uh, we looked at Matthew 24 and Luke 21 as a precursor to going through Matthew 24, which we'll do over the next, uh, you know, three or four weeks. And uh, I'm going to save going through other eschatological views until we go to Revelation. Uh, hopefully, we'll be done with Matthew by the end of the summer, and then I can start on. Revelation, maybe a month after I finish Matthew. Um, so today we're going to go through uh, chapter 24, going through verse 14. Hopefully everything uh, last week made sense as to why these are two completely different discussions <clears throat> and why not understanding that very point is a source of so much confusion concerning end times views and what people understand about what is to come or what already happened. People get confused about that. So, and I'm going to touch on some of those uh, that, that are found in the first 14 verses again today, just to reaffirm them to you. <clears throat> but let's go ahead and read uh, through verse 14, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 24. <clears throat> then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and disciples came up to him to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said to him, them, Do you not see all these things? Or certainly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. I shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will begin, that then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will preach in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so Jesus is in the temple. He departs the temple itself. He's still in the temple building area because the disciples are showing him the buildings of the temple. And Mark 13 gives more uh, details here. And in Mark 13 and uh, verse 1, the disciples say to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So they're pointing to the stones of the temple. And according to Josephus, Josephus is a Jewish historian living uh, during this period of time, he says the temple, that one of the stones of the temple was 70 feet long, 10 feet tall and 8 foot wide. So you can see, that's just one stone, not several stones, but it's one stone. 70 feet long, 10 feet uh, wide, and 8 feet deep. So you can imagine why they're astonished by these magnificent stones. And why they're saying this. And Jesus says, do you not see all these things? He said, assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that should not be thrown down. Wow, that's a miraculous thing. That these stones, every single, even that really big one, is not going to be left upon another. It's all going to be completely destroyed. And um, maybe next week when we get into verse 15 and beyond, I'm going to read to you a little bit from Josephus about what happened, why these... Uh, in fact, I'll just give you a little bit of a tidbit here. Uh, Titus, we talked about this last week. Titus was the one who was in charge of the army when the temple was destroyed. Remember, he took over from his father Vespasian. He went back to to Rome to become the, the emperor of Rome. So he took over, and he did not want to destroy the temple or the buildings around it. He did not want to destroy them. And the, it was a, it's a pretty powerful thing. I mean, this one of the, the gates to the temple, or the east gate, uh, is said by Josephus that 20 men had to be used to open and close that one gate. So it's a very, I mean, these are strong things. And, they, and the Romans brought their battering rams and were beating against these things. They couldn't make even a dent in it. So these are pretty powerful things. And they were putting up ladders to go over over top it. Also, they wouldn't destroy it. 
They're going to alter all these things so they wouldn't destroy the temple. So they're trying to go through the gates, trying to go over top of it, putting ladders on top. And what do they do? They push the ladders off. The Jews will push the ladders off. They kill people as they're coming up the ladders. And so finally, uh, you know, this is, you can imagine the Roman soldiers are getting pretty upset about this. Their friends, their buddies, they themselves are getting hurt and killed because the t- Titus is not willing to destroy the temple or the buildings around it. So finally, they light to fire the, the wall around the temple and they make a way through it. But then they still don't want to destroy the temple itself. And Titus is against it the whole time. He goes to great lengths to, to make sure the temple is not destroyed. Uh, but then a, rogue, a couple of rogue soldiers and some more rogue soldiers actually light fire to it. And they, I mean, they're so passionate and so angry and so hate-filled towards the Jewish people because of what they're doing to them. There's no stopping them. No matter what general or what uh, other generals are telling them to stop, there's no stopping them. They're so filled with rage and hate uh, that it's destroyed. Not one stone is left upon another because of their hate they had for the Jewish people because of what they were doing to them. But Titus himself, the one who was in charge of this, this army and who would later on become emperor after his father uh, passed away, he did not want to destroy the temple, Okay, which is going to go in direct opposition to what people will say happens in verse 15, which we'll talk about next week. So not one stone is left upon another, and it's thrown down. Let's just look at Luke again, see what he says. Luke 19, uh, what Jesus says here in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, uh, same thing. This is, once again, very different conversation. This is even before Luke 21. So Luke, 9, Luke 19, verse 41 uh, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you do not know the time of your visitation. And uh, if you want to study this on your own time and read some of Josephus' writings... You can go to ccel.org. It's, you can read all his writings on there for free, ccel.org. And uh, he talks about the destruction of the temple in book 6 and chapter 4. Okay, so if you want to read that for yourself, uh, some good reading. Okay, so not, not one stone left upon another. And then, of course, there's a gap here between verse 2 and verse 3, because what happens, they go to the Mount of Olives. And when I told you last week is what we see from Luke 21, there's different questions being asked. Now, the questions being asked in Luke 21, in verse 7, is about the temple. Teacher, but when will these things be? The temple being destroyed, not one stone be left upon another. That's verse 7 of Luke 21. And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now, in Luke 21, he doesn't immediately answer that question, does he? He begins to talk about the end times at first. But then in verse 12, he says, before these things. And he starts to talk about actually answering the questions they had in verse 7. And through verse 24, he answers their question. But then from verse 25 to verse 36, he talks about the end times again. And so with that context in mind, what they're going to ask him about now is the end times. The very last thing we have recorded that Jesus said to them before they left the temple area and went to the Mount of Olives. So these questions in verse 3 have nothing to do with what Jesus said in verse 2. Absolutely nothing. They have to do with the very last thing Jesus said to them in Luke 21, before they departed from that area. So he asked three questions. Um, and once again, we saw it from Mark 13:3 from last week. The disciples, the specific disciples who came to him privately, were Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Those are the four that came to him. Okay, asking him these questions. Tell us when will these things be? The things he was just talking about in Luke 21, the last thing he talked about. And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. Now, if you get mixed up here and you say that this is going to talk about. The temple being destroyed. Now you have to say, well, Jesus came back when the temple was destroyed. And a lot of them will say, they'll say, well, Jesus came back in a certain sense in AD 70 because he came back in destruction of the temple. They see how you can get mixed up there? Okay, and, and, and the end of the age. Well, the end of the, uh, the Jewish age and the start of the church age. 
So, so there's, there's lots of problems. You have to understand these things that there's a different conversation going on here. If you don't, you'll have all kinds of mix-ups. Okay? So when will these things be? The last thing he talked about from Luke 21. And the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. The end of what age? The end of the age of men ruling over the earth. And the beginning of the age of God and Jesus ruling over the earth. That's the beginning of the, beginning of the millennial reign. The Revelation 20 talks about. And the first thing he says in verse 4, and let's, let's just stop right here for a second. And now he's about to give them some warnings. Now, are these warnings for the disciples he's talking to? They couldn't possibly be. They're not going to be around. They're for us. They're for us. If we're in the last age and we're in the end of this age that he's about to talk about, these warnings are for us, not for them. And you see the first warning, you know it can't be for them. It says, take it, no one to see. Well, they can be deceived. That's good. That, that could be for them. But listen to what it says in this. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, they saw Jesus for three years in the flesh. He taught them. He rose from the dead. And then he sent it to the Father. He said, I will come in like manner. So why would he say, take ye, lest someone deceive that someone will come and say, I am the Christ. Would they possibly be fooled by that? They saw Jesus in the flesh for three years. They'd have to forget what he looked like to be deceived by that. And so that couldn't possibly be a warning for them. But many will come in the name of Christ, in the name of being an anointed one. Now, this could just mean someone saying, I'm an anointed teacher. It could be, Or it could mean, literally, I am the Messiah. Okay? Um, and so, but there's many he will come, and many will be deceived. Many will be deceived. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Now, what's the response we should have when there's wars and rumors of wars? Should we be troubled? Should we be fretting and anxious and nervous? And No, be not troubled. That's our response. The proper response to hearing of wars, to knowing of wars, is that we're not troubled. Now, I checked out this website. I think it's a pretty good website. It's called conflicthistory.com. And ConflictHistory.com gives all the conflicts throughout the ages, all the wars worldwide that are known about. Okay, and you go through them. I took a, I took a hundred years at a time. You know, I went from thirty to you know to about a hundred, and then I went from hundred to hundred, and all the way up. And from and it just you could see it getting worse and worse, more and more conflicts. And from uh, eighteen ninety nine to two thousand eleven, there were six hundred and sixty six conflicts. Okay. And it's just going to be an interesting number, huh? And then it's just going to go up from there. Now, this is talking about, uh, this is not talking about necessarily uh, all throughout the ages since Jesus said this. I think this is talking about, once again, the very end. These are the things he's discussing here. So things, I mean, if we saw 666 in the last 100 years, think about how much more worse it's going to get when we get to the end. It's going to get worse and worse. But our, our response is to not be troubled, because what all these things must come to pass. But when you hear of wars and rumors of war, is the end yet? The end is not yet. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now, famines, hunger, starvation, you see it a little bit in the world now, but it's going to get worse. Um, some people, uh, usually from the uh, the pre-trib left-behind camp will suggest that someone's going to control the, the food in the world. Well, that's possible. We, we can see signs of that uh, going on right now, that uh, companies like uh, Monsanto want to control crops. The government, Our own government wants to say you can't have your own private garden. You know, different things like that. Now, that I don't think that explicitly said, but that, that would be one way to cause lots of famine. If a certain small group of people controlled all the food in the world, or all the wa- fresh water in the world. Imagine that. All the fresh water in the world. I mean, we can live without food for a month or so. But water, maybe a few days, maybe a week, we can go without water. But that would be very difficult to do that. And so there are going to be lots of famines. There will be pestilences. And pestilences are simply sicknesses, diseases. Uh, but it can also mean infestations of creatures. Now, what usually follows wars? Death, maggots, lice, maggots, lice diseases, 
sicknesses, lots of sicknesses, because there's not, not very good hygiene going on. There's not very, the, all the food's being used for the soldiers, so there's not much food for other people. And usually when you have those kind of problems, what kind of creatures come in? Rodents. Yes. And that, that could be a pestilence. Rodents, roaches, all kinds of creatures uh, as a judgment for all these things that are going on. Yeah, frogs too. Yep. Uh, earthquakes in various places, and and if you were to go, I think you know about this website, Tracy, about the website that talks about the different earthquakes going on around the world and how the the it's going up and getting. You talked about this in the last teaching you did over here when you came to visit. It's just going up and getting worse and worse. Earthquakes all over the place, and the whole world is shaking. Okay, but it's going to get worse because verse eight says. All these, the thing he just talked about from verse 4 to verse 7, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay, the word translated sorrows there in the Greek is Odin, and it means it's, it's commonly used for birth pains for women. Now, women are, every woman here has, has, has given birth, and they, they know birth pains means that it's almost time. You begin to have contractions. Your water breaks. And now you know it's almost time. Birth pains are coming. Now, you might have some false birth pains before that, right? But when the birth pains come, you know that you know it's time. The baby is coming. And so the, the baby that's coming in this situation is Christ's kingdom. That's what these birth pains are going to give birth to. And so all these things in verses 4 through 7 are all talking about birth pains at the end of the age. Okay? In fact, let's just go to Revelation 6 for a second here. And I want to show you how these things talked about in verses 4 through 7 uh, talk about the seals that are broken in Revelation 6 and how they match up. <coughs> we'll start in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened up one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, we might uh, you know, automatically assume that conquering and conquer is talking about wars there, but it can be very easily be talking about delusion, deception, which is what verses 4 and 5 are talking about. Because you can conquer someone through deception, too. Because what do you happen when someone's deceived? You have their allegiance. You have them given over to you. You see people who will hold first, uh, fast to a person and their thoughts and their deceptions over God, over Jesus Christ, or what the Bible says, and in doing so, they have conquered that person. They become a soldier to some degree for that person. And so that's what I think is talking about in this first horse we see here. That the conquering and the conquer is strong deception, strong delusion. You see that. In verses 4 and 5 of Matthew 24. The second seal. When you open the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery, fiery red, went out. and was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. The people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And what's the next thing we see in verse 6 and verse 7? We see wars, rumors of wars. Uh, nation rising as nation and kingdom against kingdom. And so we see this very thing going on with the second seal. Jesus, so it's almost like Jesus is going in chronological order here for what he's revealing to John later on, uh, about 60 years later on, he's revealing this to John. He's going the same order he went in in Matthew 24. Uh, and then the, the third seal, starting in verse 5 of Revelation 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales. And that word scales there actually literally means yokes, like yokes you put on an animal, okay? So he had a pair of yokes in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil uh, and the wine. And so we see that there's famines coming. And what do you see in, in the first... Uh, the second part of verse 7, you see famines, you see pestilences in these places. So you have famines. So a quart of wheat is not very much wheat. And denarius is a person's one day's worth of wages. 
And so for one day's worth of wages, you can provide your family with one quart of wheat. And guess what? If you want some barley, you want three quarts of barley, it's going to take another day. So you can't even get them in the same day. Okay? Um, and if I were to take, let's just say I took the, the average annual income worldwide, which currently right now is $7,000 a year. Doesn't sound like much to us Americans, but $7,000 a year. If I broke that down to five days a week, 260 days in a year, uh, or how many, many days that is, it's five days a week times 50, two weeks, yes, 260 days a year, um, then that equals up to about $27 a day. So let's just take that. $27 for a quart of wheat. $27 for three quarts of barley. Man, that's expensive. We're not talking about 50 pounds of flour and like that. We're talking about a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley. Now, if I were to take American income, I think the average annual income of America is somewhere around 40000 something like that. That's a lot more money even. We're talking about multiplying it by six now. So instead of $27, we're talking about uh, $162 for a quart of wheat. Now, that right there is famine. Because guess what? If that's what it costs, not many people can afford that. You're going to starve to death. And this can happen many different ways. This can happen by the money being worth nothing. Okay, This can happen by someone controlling the food, as we talked about a little bit ago. Many different ways this can happen, but it's going to happen. And so we see that famines talked about in the third seal, and we also see it talked about in Matthew 24, just going down the order that Jesus gives. We see it talked about in Matthew 24, 7. Um, and we'll say 7b. Like if you split up the verse in two different sections, a and b, it's talking about 24-7b. Then the fourth seal. <clears throat> when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale, which is like a puke color, horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. The power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and the beast of the earth. And so we see... That's, once again, uh, 7b, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. The beasts of the earth can be talking about, once again, uh, pestilences, different creatures in the earth. So we see these, and, and a fourth of the earth, let's think about it for a second. It doesn't say a fourth of the people. A fourth of the land of the earth. And so, let's take China and India, for example. Those two countries alone would not constitute a fourth of the, earth, the land of the earth. Okay? But there's two and a half billion people in both those countries combined, which is more than a third of the people on the earth. So a fourth of the land, we don't know what fourth it is, but a fourth of the land could take more than a fourth of the population, could take a half the population, depending on where there's, I mean, if it doesn't take Wyoming, doesn't take Idaho, doesn't take uh, Oregon, doesn't take, you know, Montana, and those are left out, I mean, who, the other places that are, like New York, is that taken out? Is Los Angeles taken out? Is Chicago taken out? Is Tokyo taken out? Is Manila taken out? All these these cities that have these huge populations, a fourth of the land is taken out. Okay? So you can see how this is going along with what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24. Not only that, in verses 9, we talk about the martyrs here being, being killed. In the fifth seal, and what do we see Jesus talk about next in Matthew 24? About us being delivered up to people. Uh, being delivered up for our faith. And we, so the beginning of sorrows in verse 8 uh, is talking about all these things. The first four seals are the beginning of sorrows. Just the beginning, though. Okay? And I think at that point is where the halfway point is. And that's why we see in verse 9, it says, in verse 9, then, that's the Greek word tate, at that time, at the end of those beginning of sorrows, they would deliver you up to tribulation. Now, once again, is this talking about the disciples he's speaking to? No, it's talking about us. Us. We will be delivered up to tribulation and to kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, all nations, disciples weren't hated by all nations. They didn't make it to all nations. But all, I mean, you think about America, for example. I mean, the hatred is starting to grow here, isn't it? But 20 years ago, American, I mean, Christians were pretty accepted in America. wasn't much persecution. The homosexual agenda wasn't really rampant yet. Uh, all the morality we see now, all the pornography on the Internet. The Internet wasn't even really around 20 years ago. 
uh, in little bits, but not like it is now. We have access to it on your phone, on your, everywhere. And so as things run rampant more, I mean, America is like one of the last places probably on earth where we can be accepted to a small degree at least, even to a large degree, to some degree. I mean, we're not getting put in jail. We're not being beat and killed for our faith. Uh, we maybe get on, I mean, we're still winning things in the court. We saw that from Brother John's case, some of the cases we've had. We're still winning things in court. So America almost seemed like the lost, last stronghold the devil was trying to overcome. Not that he doesn't already have America or that America is a Christian nation, but we have somewhat of freedom here still. Uh, but at that time, all nations will hate us. All nations will try to deliver us up the tribulation and try to kill us. Now we know from Revelation 12 that some of us will escape this. But some of us won't. Some of us won't. And what will be the result of all nations hating us and tribulation and being killed? But what is one of the powers, one of the strengths Satan has to use against you and me? What is he going to try to use against you to get you to depart from the faith? Kill you. So what's going to happen next? When your life is put on the line and you're tortured for Christ, you have tribulation for Christ, and all, I mean, we're not, we, you were living in a little capsule here in America. But all nations hate, there's no capsules anymore. Besides maybe that one little bubble that God makes out in the desert where he leads you and he protects you. But the rest of the world, there is no bubble. There's no protection from police. There's no court system to go to. There's no First Amendment or Second Amendment anymore. There's none of those things. All nations are hating us now. Okay? And so what will happen? Well, it says right here in verse 10. And then, tate, at that time, many will be offended. That's the Greek word scandalizomai. Scandalizo. We're scandalized. We're going to be caused to downfall and cause to sin because the devil has the strength of death, but death for the Christian has lost its sting, so it shouldn't bother us, but it does. Let's face it. When you're faced with torture and death, you're going to be tempted to depart from the faith. I've been reading through um, another book written by Richard Wormbrand. Um, I think in, I can't remember the name of it, but it's talking about his, his experience of being tortured. It goes into deep detail. And he confesses many times that he considered departing from the faith. Many times. And so it's going to be a temptation, friends. So prepare yourself now for it. Begin to prepare yourself for this. Let, let these warnings that Jesus is giving to us, not the disciples, given to us through the disciples, let them be a warning to you. These things are going to happen. And so many will be offended. Many will be caused to sin, will, will, will fall down, will, be, uh, will trip up, and they'll betray one another. You know, one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why Richard Wernbrand was in prison is because he would not betray his brothers in Christ and, and, and tell people where they were and how they could get to them and kill them. That's one of the reasons why. But here it's saying that many will, the Greek word here means to deliver, to hand over. So uh, it'd be like me handing John over. I'm in prison. They're torturing me. Tell me where the McGloan is. Okay, he's right here. It'd be like me delivering him and handing him over. That's what it'd be like. So people will betray one another and will hate. But I thought Christians didn't hate. Well, they don't. But these people are departing from the faith, are they not? Because if you if you hate your brother, 1 John 3.15 says you're a murderer at heart. And no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So these people are departing from the faith. And because all these things are happening, guess what? People are going to look for a way out. I mean, when you're enduring suffering and torture... You might make up a new doctrine to get yourself out of it. Like, well, I can just, uh, you know, give in now and later on I'll repent for it. Or, or you know, maybe we can just work along with the government and, and, and let them rule over us and, and do what they say and just not talk about those certain doctrines. We, we, we'll just won't talk about homosexuality being sin and abomination to God. Or, okay, okay, you know, we, we won't come against uh, you killing people and saying that's wrong. You know, so people will make up new doctrines, and what will happen then? Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now, a false prophet is not someone who's going to be openly false. For someone to be a prophet at all, they have to be, at least as the guise of a Christian, or at that point in time, a guise of a Jewish follower of God. And so, But they're going to be false prophets. And they're going to rise up and deceive many. Many will be deceived. And so when you're being you're suffering for Jesus' name, 
don't look for the way out by changing your doctrine and trying to squiggle out of it like that. Realize that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. There's no squiggling out of it, friends. The only way to get out of that is if God leads you to the, to the wilderness where he protects you for a time, times and a half a time. So many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And of course, you know, to a some degree, these things are happening now. To some degree. But this is not talking about now. This is talking about the last days. The last seven years. And so even though we see the precursors to these things... The precursors to a one-world government, which the Antichrist will rule over, the precursors to maybe food control, the precursors to deception. There's deception running rampant now. I mean, let's face it. Once they've always saved, you can sin all you want and still be saved. You can't lose your, you know, you can't lose your salvation. You're born a sinner. All these things. Oh, we can be a patriot. And, you know, we can be involved in the world and still be a Christian. All these things are deceptions. But there's a greater deception coming. And you know what I think the greatest deception is going to be is? It's taking the mark of the beast. People are going to say, oh, you can take the mark of the beast. No big deal. You can still be a Christian and take the mark of the beast. They're going to say that. I, I, got, I got almost no doubt in my heart they're going to say something like that, and that's going to be the greatest deception. And these false prophets are going to fall in line with the false prophet, the false Elijah who is to come. They're going to fall in line with them. And because lawlessness or sin will abound, the love, the agape, of most or many or much, the greater part will grow cold. And agape, from what my study has shown in, in the scriptures, I, I didn't go through every single uh, time it's used, but every time I saw it, it's always used about either God's love or about Christian love for another Christian or Christian love for God. And so this is obviously talking about Christians here. Th- their love will grow cold. And, and, and the word, the word translated as cold there, I'm not so sure that's actually the best, uh, word for it, because the, the word there means that it's often used of fire being extinguished. Now we have fire, you extinguish it, it's colder, isn't it? So it, it doesn't make sense in that sense, but it's talking about their, their fire going out, being extinguished. So their fire for God has been extinguished. They're no longer on fire for him, as we like to say in Christianity. And so their, their love, lawlessness is going to bow. It's going to be all around them, and they're going to give into it. Give into deception. Give into betraying their brother. Give into uh, hating people and being offended. Give into um, maybe taking the mark of the beast or giving into uh, other things. That's going to destroy their faith. Of course, verse, th- verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, oftentimes in Christian circles, we use the word, are you saved? Are you saved? When did you get saved? This is talking about future here. Will be saved. Future salvation. The future salvation is the inheritance of the saints entering into the promised land, the rest that is still there for us to enter into, which will only happen if you endure through all these things. You have to endure through all these things. We're not talking about enduring through the little things we endure through here in America. We're talking about enduring through all of these things. If you make it to the end of that, you will be saved. Someone says, well, I I got saved 10 years ago. Well, it's true in some sense. They got forgiveness of their past sins 10 years ago and began, entered into a relationship with God. And we know that relationship with God, the Father and the Son, is eternal life, according to John 17, 3. Was that the end of it? That's the deposit, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. That's the promise. That's the down payment of what is to come. It's not the full payment. The full payment only happens when someone endures to the end. The promised land, entering into the new Jerusalem. But what happens if you don't endure to the end? Will you be saved? So those who say, I was saved ten years ago, that could be true. Maybe they were genuinely saved, but they're not living for God now. They're not enduring right now. They're little things we have to endure with here in America, like temptation to sin. If they're not enduring through that, are they presently saved? No. And if they die in their current state, will they enter into this future salvation? The answer is no. Because by definition, they're not enduring. And if they die in that current state, they have not endured to the end. So they will not be saved. 
So in Christianity, there's I was saved, I am saved, I will be saved. I was saved, I got forgiveness of my past sins, I repented, trusted in Christ, got baptized, I am saved, I'm staying with it, I'm staying sanctified, I'm living in the truth, I'm walking according to his commandments, and I will be saved if I continue until the very end. So I was saved, I am saved, I will be saved. So Christians who are currently Christians can say the first two, but they can't say the last one yet. It's yet to be determined. And, and really, here's the problem. When people say, I got saved, they're always talking about the last one. They're always talking about the third one. They're talking about, I'm going to be in heaven. That's what they're saying. Then I'm going to be part of God's kingdom. But that's yet to be determined. So how can they even say that? And so when we're talking about saved or not saved, we have to you know, define our terms properly to be able to understand what the Bible is saying. And so there's a future salvation to be had. And so even though I've been justified by God and I'm currently sanctified, I'm living holy, I'm walking according to his commandments, it's yet to be seen whether I'm going to stay in this, this position of sanctification and whether I'm going to die in that and be to get the glorification of entering into his kingdom. That's yet to be seen. And then we see in verse 14 uh, what will happen right before the end. And then we'll see next week, he's going to go back a little bit and talk about some other things that happen. But right before the end, the gospel of the kingdom of priests in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then, at that time, the end will come. So, some of these people from Revelation 12, I'm becoming more and more convinced that they're left out of that group who goes into the wilderness for time, times, and half a time because, for the sole purpose of, continuing to preach the gospel in the nations. Because there's going to be people, as we already know, from Zechariah 14, people who will not take the mark of the beast, yet are not Christians. And so, the mark of the beast is not going to happen overnight. I mean, he's got control for three and a half years after he installs that system. So, he, I mean, he, it's going to take time to get throughout the whole world and make everyone take the mark of the beast, make everyone bow down and worship him and his image. So there's going to be time to preach still to all the world, all the nations. And then the end will come. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before in this fellowship, the Back to Jerusalem movement, how they're moving from China, moving down the 1040 window, trying to make their way back to Jerusalem. And that's the last... You know, nations of people who have not heard the gospel have no gospel witness. And so God may even call some people we know, even this fellowship, to go to that window and preach. They're not doing the same thing the Back to Jerusalem movement is doing, going back to China, but preaching to the people in that area who've never heard the truth, who've never heard the gospel. Because until that happens, the end will not come. The end will not come. So God's going to send some of his servants out during these last three and a half years, and in the first three and a half years as well all through the end, to preach the gospel to all the nations. Uh, and then the end will come. Alright, so we see this is talking about the uh, verses 5 um, through 7. are talking about the first four seals. I believe talking about the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then we see uh, from verses 9 to verse 14, I think it's referring to the last three and a half years. And... Um, but of course, we'll go into more detail about all those things when we go through Revelation. This is just a, I mean, this is Jesus teaching how based what Revelation talks about in a snapshot, and it goes into greater detail in Revelation. So next week we'll probably go from 15 to 28, and uh, he goes back to the halfway point in verse 15 and goes through it again. All right, well, we'll stop there for today. Does anyone have uh, questions, objections, or things they want to add?
and the living lawlessness would be to begin to extinguish that fire to where grows hope. Yeah, the, the, the extinguishing is talking about there is uh, not necessarily the Holy Spirit. I mean, obviously, the Holy Spirit is grieved when Christians sin. And uh, if they continue in it, he will depart from them, and uh, they'll have no hope. Um, but the, the thing that's being extinguished here, that's growing cold, is the the agape, this, this love that Christians only possess, and that God only possesses from the scriptures. Um, this is not talking about any other kind of love. It's talking about this true love that people have for God and have for each other and that God has for people. And so that's what will be extinguished. That's what will grow cold. Um, grow cold is, 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 an, is an okay translation, but I, th- I think a, pr- a better translation is to be extinguished. And I, th- I think it fits a lot of what we talk about, uh, you know, being on fire for God and being zealous for him and that that will be extinguished, be put out. And the point I'm making here by, by saying that is that these people are obviously Christians. Because for something to go out, it must be there in the first place. If there's no fire, there's nothing to make cold. If there's no fire, there's nothing to put out. There's nothing to extinguish. So they must have the agape in order for it to go out, for it to grow cold, for it to extinguish. And so it's obviously, I think, from verse uh, 9 to verse uh, 13, it's talking about Christians. All of that's about Christians. Being delivered up, being tribulation, being killed, being offended, scandalized, uh, hating, betraying, delivering one another up, uh, being deceived by false prophets, true, genuine Christians being deceived by the people now, and going astray. And uh, lawlessness abounding all around them, and so their love, their agape is extinguished. They just kind of go in with it. They go with the flow. Yeah. That kind of like a picture of uh, apostasy? Yes, that is apostasy. Exactly what it is. That's what, that's what all of this is talking about from verse 10 to verse 13. It's all talking about apostasy. And uh, the great apostasy, which 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about, I think is talking about taking the mark of the beast. Now, that's my personal opinion. I don't know that for sure. But it sure is talking about that in that, that passage. And I think a lot of people who, are, who were at one point in time genuine Christians, they will take the mark of the beast and I think one of the reasons why, because a lot of these deceptions we have coming up to that, this one saved, always saved, because sin only you want to be saved. Uh, you know, even the pre-tribulation doctrine, rapture doctrine, if you're supposed to be out of here before the Antichrist is here, then he can't be the Antichrist. And therefore, if I take this mark, it's not a big deal. You know? But at the same time, we talked about before, we can't be have this paranoid about these different things that come out there. People thought barcodes were the mark of the beast, that driver's license, social security cards, uh, credit cards... That all these things are the mark of the beast. We need to be very careful that we're not being paranoia about that uh, when it comes to those things. I had a guy on YouTube tell me the Bible is the mark of the beast. Um, so that's what I think the great delusion is. And that's what I think it's talking about. We so much pressure, so much, that's what tribulation means, pressure all around us, that some people just pop, you know. If, if, I, put, if I have a watermelon on a, on a cement block, and I put keep putting weights on top of it, hundred pound weights on top of it. What's gonna the watermelon's filling what inside? Pressure. Pressure, and eventually, <laughs> explodes all over the place. So some Christians are gonna feel the pressure all around them. Instead of drawing near to God and allowing Him to relieve the pressure and to draw near Him and not be troubled, they're going to allow it to get to them, and they're going to give in. All the lost around, they're gonna. It's become part of it. It's become part of it. That's, that's uh, why uh, Paul wrote to Timothy that we need to uh, take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. Yeah. For in so doing, we will save ourselves mm-hmm. and those who hear us. Right. Because these, these doctrines that are uh, being promoted now and up to the up to the coming of the Lord, these things just once saved, always a preacher of teachings, different things like that, are uh, influence people. Yes. To Yes. He's an antinomian, man. Okay, he had read 
you, you had made comments along those lines that he was confused about that and asking, you know, is that true, you know? And God, you know, we're saved, we're, we're always saved, so he understands. It was that, that was the kind of the thoughts that were being presented there. Well, if they're going to... So if you take yeah. it, God, you know, and you're under pressure and you're, you know, and you did that, nothing can separate you from right. the love of Christ. So um, the Lord understands. He's talking about those who are, who are wicked. Yes. That, that do that. He's not talking about Christians. He's, he's because you know you're you're his forever and uh, his child. And you, you're you're always going to be his child. And right. so that you can see that that not taking heed to true doctrine. The, Paul says if you do take heed to, to the doctrine, you'll save yourself. Right. So when you take heed to the false doctrine, you could be losing your own salvation. Yeah. I mean, if Romans eight is going to be used to say that I can fornicate and not. Uh, lose the love of Christ. I can be a drunkard, not lose the love of Christ. You know, Charles Stanley said you can become a Muslim, an atheist, not lose, lose the love of Christ. Worshiper. Yeah, devil worshiper. If that's true, what is taking the mark of me? It's becoming a devil worshiper. And so, why is that the? Why would that be the exception to why? If a Christian took that, why would that make them depart from the faith? If nothing else makes them depart from the faith. So these doctrines obviously lead down the pathway, the yellow brick road, so to speak to this last one horrible doctrine, this great delusion of taking the mark of the beast. If you take that, there's no repentance of that. There's no repentance of taking the mark of the beast. It's it. It's over. So at some point, possibly, you said at that, at those, at that point when, when, when uh, God sends all preachers to preach, mm-hmm. it might be something that we would preach. Don't take the mark of the beast. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Don't take the mark of the beast. That'd definitely be something that would be resounding from the lips of Christians during time. Do not take the mark of the beast. Yeah. You take it, it's over. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, it's over. There's no repenting of that. You're guaranteed to go to hellfire if you take the mark of the beast. So. No. Has to do with worshiping him, right. and, and we're going to understand it even better than anyone ever has if we're if we're there, because as Daniel said. Knowledge will run to and fro, and people in the end will understand it even better. Because he didn't understand some of that stuff. Yeah, and so people in the end, I mean, we're, we're understanding it better now than even Daniel did. But people who are actually in it and seeing it, they'll understand it better than anyone else ever has. Probably even better than John did when he was writing it down. Yeah, I'm doing uh, an examination on the Daniel 12, uh-huh. and uh, Daniel didn't understand any of it. Yeah. He had no understanding of it. He kept asking questions right. to the angel that was giving him the information. <coughs> well, what does that mean? He'd say something. Well, what does that mean? Right. He had no understanding of it. And then in, in Daniel 12, uh, the understanding was sealed up till the time of the end. So he, the angel was giving no more interpretation until the time of the end. Right. And that's in, in uh, chapter 12. So, yeah. And then also in Revelation, uh, there were several thunders uttered. In Revelation 10, verse 4, the seven thunders. And John was told, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered. Do not write them. And so there's many things that people who are at the very end are going to understand much better than anyone else ever has, even better than we're understanding it now. Yeah, because God's not willing that any other Right, right. And so... Right. He's given them ample opportunity. Ample opportunity. Even sending preachers out who are being tortured in tribulation and great pressure for their souls, for their sake. So. You, you think uh, the quench, the quench, the, uh, the love growing cold, also think of the, the uh, five foolish virgins. They have their lamps. Run out. Run, their out light extinguishes. The light. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about the kiss coming, right? And the light going out, right? And that's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about that. They're really related to the end times. But but either way, whether it's about end times or not, I mean, there's, there's Christians now whose lights are being extinguished over much easier things than this, much smaller things than this. And if we if we can't deal with simple things like temptation to sin, like we deal with now, we're not going to make it through this stuff. So you need to be overcomers now. Uh, so when, you, when that comes, you're prepared for it. And get out into the streets now, dealing with the lost now, dealing with their their mild persecution now. So when that when that bad stuff comes, I can handle this. I've, I've kind of taken my step, taking little steps up the way, so I can handle. It's coming away.
Prashant. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. It'd be kind of like uh, one of us open-air preachers who are hated in small amounts at Kentucky Derby and stuff like that, being given a worldwide audience to preach. And, and what, what, a, what do professing Christians say to us at college campus? You're giving us all a bad name. You know, that's what they say. And so I, I can imagine uh, the two witnesses giving all of us a bad name, so to speak, um, because, you know, what they preach is what we, I mean, what they are going to preach is what we preach. And so it, it would make it, it would speed things along. Definitely would speed things along a lot quicker. And they're, they're doing it in the first three and a half years. So this, when this verse uh, four through seven is talking about, uh, is, is all happening during that time. And then when, when they're killed at the halfway point, that's when I think Percy is going to get really strong, great pressure for us. And so it could have something to do with that. Yeah. I mean, we, the Bible doesn't, doesn't explicitly say that, I don't think, but, um, a whole world rejoiced over their deaths. And so they'll definitely rejoice over our... If we're anything like them, they'll definitely rejoice over our deaths, too. And so yeah, that, that could kind of speed things along a little quicker, I'd say. You know, when we, Right. You know, we, we go to college campuses, and we, we, you know, we get a little bit of the hatred of, the, of those sinners there. And, and the professor and Christian say, you're making everything worse for us. You know, they, they, they align us with you. Well, maybe you should step up and, and suffer a little bit for the name of Jesus. And then this won't be such an astonishing thing to you, and so that and 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 what are those? What, what do you think the typical college uh, campus Christian would do if, for what we're doing, for what we preach, they began to suffer for it? They'll depart from the faith if they ever are, if they even are in the faith in the first place. They'll depart from it. So, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that that could be a precursor of many being offended. Uh, betraying one another, hating one another. It could be a precursor to that. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask what the question was so we can all, I can, I can kind of understand. Okay, I didn't know you didn't hear it. Sure. Hear sure. Yeah, his question was um, concerning the two witnesses and their worldwide witness. If that uh, kind of affects why we're go through tribulation, why we're suffering, why we're hated by all nations now. And uh, I would just explain how that, that could possibly be. I mean, can you imagine one of us here who's an open air preacher going in front of a TV screen and for three and a half years preaching the message we preach in the open air? I mean, when we go to college camp, we see it in a small degree, the professing Christians there, whether they truly are Christian or not, they, they, they don't like the fact that they're being lumped together with us. Uh, now they're going to receive some of the criticism. They're going to receive some of the hatred that they that they've been trying so hard not to get a part of. And so, well, do you agree with those guys in Jerusalem? Do you agree with what they're saying? Why are they bringing down all this stuff on us? You know, I, I agree with what they say. It's not the way they're they're saying it. You know, maybe they'll say that. And, but even if they say that, even if they'll say anything, just the fact that they're named Christians. It's gonna, it's going to bring tribulation upon them because like what Sean said, the whole world's seeing it. So just by being named a Christian, by going to a building you call a church, whether you're a, a wheat or a tear, it's gonna bring persecution on you and true believers are gonna be offended, they're gonna betray, and they're gonna hate one another. They're gonna depart from the faith. So that's a good point, Sean. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna bring up uh, more of a point of uh, history. Um, fulfilled prophecies uh, you were reading about uh, not one stone shall be left upon another they will be cast down mm-hmm. well uh, I watched a video and uh, it's a historical fact that the second temple was built on a platform it's a raised platform the whole area is just one big raised platform there are streets that are around that platform that are below it huh. and in the writings of Josephus and also in actuality Every stone was cast off of that platform. And now there's a pile of stones on one of the side streets, and that pile of stones were some of the stones from the temple that are still in the street today. Hmm. Still a pile of stones laying there today. Interesting. And they were all actually cast off the platform onto the street below. 
Hmm. So I think it's pretty interesting. It is. And, and if, if you were to read through Josephus' writings, he talks about the things that happened before the temple was destroyed. Some miraculous things, man. Like that door, that gate, to, that door to the gate I was talking about, it was in the middle of the night, swung open, all by itself. The one that 20 men have to open and close. It was swung open and then it was swung closed by itself. There were signs in, in the sky uh, warning them about this coming. And there's also a guy named Jesus... Okay, it wasn't Jesus the Christ, but it was a guy named Jesus for seven years and five months came to Jerusalem and just cried out, Woe unto Jerusalem. Woe and just crying out about the destruction that's coming for them. They torture him, they would beat him. It says Josephus says to the bone. They beat him to the bone, and he wouldn't complain, wouldn't weep, wouldn't say defend himself. He just keep crying out the same thing. And then uh so he started doing this about um Seven years and five months before the temple was was uh, begun to be destroyed. So about four years before they began to attack. They began to attack at 66. Okay, So about three and a half, four years before that, that they were beginning to be attacked, he was crying out in the streets as a prophet that sent from God. You could tell he was sent from God. His voice never got hoarse. He would just cry out and cry out day and night about destruction. And then at the end, Josephus says, he cried out, Woe in Jerusalem one more time. He said, Woe unto me as well. And then somehow a rock came from the sky and hit him or something like that. I guess from the Romans attacking. And so that was it. And so God, God, even with these people, they rejected Jesus, rejected the disciples, rejected the apostles, rejected James, the bishop of Jerusalem. All their counsel, he brought a prophet to come declare, according to Josephus anyway. I mean, this isn't found in the Bible. But according to history, these things were happening and they still rejected him. And it's, it's said of the leaders at that time, they knew this guy was from God. He wouldn't be able to do the things he was doing if he wasn't from God. Well, they rejected Jesus, though. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 But uh, that was it for them. I had a uh, question about the, the uh, false Christ. Okay. You get the word faith movement. And Christ was just, right. he was one who had the Christ, Jesus had the Christ consciousness. Right. And, you know, there's many that are attained to the Christ conscious awareness that you are Christ yourself. So I was wondering if there's, you know, there's, and that's being promoted through Oprah to the whole world. And right. so many people are buying into that now. Um, you got all the yoga, you got Christian yoga yep. and all stuff. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if that could have something to do with this many Christ, you know, that new age, and that's that's really anti-Christ philosophy right there. And uh, I was, you know, thinking that that could be the, the anti-Christ uh, philosophy at the end of the age. You know, where he says, right. I, mean, "I am God." Right. Yeah, I think I think verse five is mainly talking to Christians, mm-hmm. and I guess Christians could be deceived by those kind of pagan religions. Um, but I, I think it's more of, of, I mean, the whole world's being deceived by those things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you got Mormonism that says you can be a god. You got, uh, uh, you know, the pagan religion saying you can be God. You got the word faith movement saying you can be a God. A lot of things got that are saying these things. Um, and so I guess that could, that could apply. I think mostly from verse 4 to verse 7, uh, verse 4 through verse 14, it's talking about Christians, people who are genuine believers going through these things. And so, although it's going to be happening worldwide, and I mean, there's people who claim to be Christians who are deceived by Oprah. And Eckhart Tolle, the, I guess the guy, the main guy who she has on there about these things. Um, and you and you got Christians in being deceived by the emergent church movement and the paganism behind that. And, uh, you, know, you know, they say that the, the main people who convert to Mormonism from another religion are Christians. You know, Baptists and people who say they're Christians, they convert to Mormonism 
um, and, and they're converting to this, and you know that, that's that's who they get to come over. They'll, they'll, they'll use the Christian language and stuff like that, and, get, and then now now they're in a religion that says you can become a god. And so, but I, I mean, it could be talking about just people saying they're an anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. I'm anointed one. And coming in Christ's name saying, I'm from Christ and I'm an anointed one. Or it could be just talking about someone who says, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. Um, as well. Yeah. He'll be the Antichrist. Yeah. There'll be lots of, there's that, the Antichrist spirit is out there. Of course, since, since John wrote first John, it's been out there. So. Are you going to say something, brother? Oh, I was just going to say that new Christ consciousness thing is just a blend of Hinduism and Buddhism. <laughs> Blend it together, and then they put Jesus's face on it. Right. And that's all it is. It's really, it's new, but in a sense, it's not new. It's just right. something. It's Eastern mysticism. It's old. It goes yeah. all the way back to the garden. You shall be right. You shall be as God. Oh yeah, it's very old. It goes all the way back old. there. So that's that's, that's the almost six thousand years. Right. 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 All right.